Welcome to episode 26. We're happy to be here with you. And today we're going to talk about... But but like I said, because... And why do, why do all these love stories resonate with us? Why do they get us in our heart? Because we're born seeking that wholeness. Right. And, and we're driven. And so I think this is just a beautiful love story that had consequences. Thank you so much <laughs> yes. for sharing yeah. with Thank us. You. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I, I just You're a delight. Welcome. And we're gonna we're gonna okay. that's kind of a flip side to the Good. David story. Um we'll kind of finish up a, a few things about his repentance and nice. everything okay. and then we're gonna do the the flip side of the Solomon story. Nice. Okay. <laughs> okay. That was so fascinating. Let's move forward now and just talk a little bit about David's repentance process. And there's a very fascinating verse in Psalm 51. It's verse 13. Here is the Psalm of David's repentance. And he says, Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So the, the contrast of David's repentance in Scripture is just night and day different than what we saw with King Saul. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Hold on to that verse. That's beautiful. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall shew forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou desirest not burnt offering. This is a kickback to what Samuel said to Saul. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, thou will not despise. That's such a connection to modern scripture, right? Here oh. we have, sometimes we think that all these things are new, but actually David's reciting them in Psalms. Right. right. And I'll never be so surprised as that how much truth came from David in Psalms. The, what, what is the saying? The... the Old Test the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, but the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Exactly. Right? It's beautiful. Yeah. So we're going to go now to the prophet Joseph Smith because he's going to say something very, very interesting. A murderer, for instance, one that sheds innocent blood, cannot have forgiveness. God just can't say, oh, that's all right. There's consequences attached to it. David sought repentance at the hand of God carefully with tears for the murder of Uriah, but he could only get it through hell. He got a promise that his soul should not be left in hell. Now I'm going to finish the quote and then I'm going to throw something back at that. Although David was a king, and this is so important, this is another reason that we believe that David had a seraph level test because his reward was an exaltation and the spirit and power of Elijah and the fullness of priesthood. That's seraph level stuff. But Joseph Smith says, although David was a king, he never did obtain the spirit and power of Elijah and the fullness of priesthood. 
And you'll probably talk about it a little bit more as we get into Elijah next time. But now I want to just throw an idea out there. In Psalm 51, David said, that then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. And I just want to ask the question, what is David doing in hell? Or perhaps what was he doing? We don't know whether he... Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Joseph Smith continues on, The priesthood that he, David, received... And the throne and kingdom of David, it was taken from him because he lost everything. But it was given to another by the name of David in the last days, who will be raised up out of his lineage. Now that is a fascinating thought. And we'll get into a few more quotes about that in just a minute. But the other thing I wanted to bring out about David and that whole thing with Bathsheba is that Bathsheba's father was Eliam. And that Eliam's father was Ahithophel. And so we know that there is some sort of resentment in Bathsheba's family that might have come before they that she was even given to Uriah. That Eliam has a rift with David. And now whether it's before or whether it's because of the death of Uriah, it will it will snowball. And Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel, is going to side with Absalom in his rebellion against King David. And so we we see that exactly what Nathan told David, that the sword would never depart from your house. He had his son rape his uh, daughter and from another mother, and then we had the brother of that daughter kill Amnon, and then we had Absalom raise up against David, and we had Ahithophel join Absalom, and then we had, and then we're going to have Adonijah rebel as well and try and take over the kingdom from Solomon. And so we're going to have brother kill brother, kill uncles of brothers and, and the sword. The consequence of David's sin is staring there in your face with the tender mercies of David and his forgiveness in the resurrection to come are there as well. Christ, in the days of his flesh, proposed to make a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, but they rejected him and his proposals. And in the consequence thereof, they were broken off, and no covenant was made with them at that time. But their unbelief has not rendered the promise of God to none effect. No, for there was another day, limited in David, which was the day of his power. And then his people Israel should be a willing people. So we have Joseph Smith making these prophecies of this end time David, and Joseph Smith would actually name Emma's son that she was carrying when he went to Carthage, David, before he left in hopes that... He would be that David. That... that that prophecy would be fulfilled. Orson Hyde in the dedicatory prayer said when he finally made it to Jerusalem after having his life on the line several times while practically starving to death 
trying to get to Jerusalem. Thou, O Lord, did once move upon the heart of Cyrus to show favor unto Jerusalem and her children. Do thou now also be pleased to inspire the hearts of kings and the powers of the earth to look with a friendly eye towards this place and with a desire to see thy righteous purposes executed in relation thereto. Let them know that it is thy good pleasure to restore the kingdom unto Israel, to raise up Jerusalem as its capital, and constitute her people a distinct nation and government with David thy servant, even a descendant from the loins of ancient David, to be their king. Fascinating that, that this was very common knowledge in Joseph's day. Right. And yet it's almost been forgotten. Right. Until Abram Gileadi's work. Exactly. And that's why this Davidic covenant and everything that we're about to get into is so huge. That uh, dedication stone in the Orson Hyde uh, Park there, we actually saw it when we went to Israel in and 1999. It's and, it's, and it's been removed for the reasons, as you can see. There's people out there that don't want Israel <laughs> to be restored as the kingdom right. and Jerusalem raised up as the capital and David to be their king. And so they they shot, they, there was a lot of turmoil over that monument and they had to take it down. All right, now we're going to look at kind of the flip side of Solomon, not what we're all used to thinking. All right, so in 1 Kings, it says that Solomon had 40,000 stalls for his horses and 40,000 yeah and we saw some of those stables over at Megiddo when we were there right. right and again this multiplying horses is building up weapons and what's the problem with amassing weapons they fall into the hands of evil men yeah evil king comes to power and and you've amassed the weapons so Deuteronomy 17 you will not multiply wives in a dynasty you will not multiply gold and silver and put your trust in it and you will not multiply horses especially horses from egypt which is exactly where solomon got them not only that but he sold those horses to the hittites the hittites in deuteronomy were number one on the list of the seven nations that they were battling against yeah. So that's uh, seems too familiar. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And then exalting himself above his brethren. This again, you're going to see in um, the oppressive taxation. And then Rehoboam is going to say, "Well, my father chastised you with, you know, with whips and taxes, but I'm going to chastise you with scorpions." Okay. So here's here's the the sinker. The sinker is. Do you know what the annual rate of gold that was shipped in? Yearly to in Solomon's kingdom, no idea. Six hundred sixty-six talents. Oh boy! <laughs> Ouch! Ring a bell to anybody. Okay, it is because of this that there are some who uh, hypothesize that King Solomon is actually a type of the Antichrist. Starts good. And that's why it's not, he's not spoken of favorably in memory, like David is spoken in favorably. Okay? Because he falls away, becomes corrupt, perhaps. But this is a quote from Pastor Mark Biltz, um, and, and I throw it out here just to stretch your mind, just, 
just to realize that we don't always see everything unless we unless we look at things in types and shadow. Solomon became a total narcissist and the Antichrist will be as well. Solomon had it all. We know that from Isaiah 14, right? He's I, 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 the king of the, of the universe, okay? Solomon had, that's actually when the tables flip on him in Isaiah. Solomon had it all, power, wealth, and fame, yet he was completely miserable, as we see in Ecclesiastes. We'll quote one of those in just a minute. Prophetically, I, Pastor Mark Biltz, seeing all this unfolding, see all this unfolding again. Remember that prophetic patterns repeat themselves over and over in history. Someone who will seem to be wiser than everyone else will try to achieve a false peace by entering into ungodly covenants with all the foreign nations. And the reason I'm reading this is because that fits exactly with what Daniel says in right. Daniel well, 11. It, yeah, it's, it's exactly what the ascension of Isaiah says. This is beautiful. Cool. In Hezekiah chapter 4, he will try to achieve a land for peace agreement in Israel, thinking it wiser to cut the baby in half and create two nations as two people groups are claiming the land of Israel as their own. Interesting take on that scenario. Pretty insightful. This ungodly leader will have no regard for God's covenants with Israel, believing the covenants have been done away with and have been replaced or have already been fulfilled, and it is time for a new era so, King Solomon, is he a good guy or a bad guy? Well, definitely. And, you know, I like to look at it kind of like when I did, so you want a king or, you know, give us a king. The concept that Samuel laid out is so clear that, hey, kings become corrupt 99% of the time. Like absolute power yes, corrupts corrupt, absolutely, absolutely. Right? Yeah, it's just... Most of the time, <coughs> excuse me. And we're not saying that, that this is the way it has to be, but you can view it this way and in this Well, light. it's most of the time that seems to be the pattern of power. Mm -hmm. It becomes a complete app unclinchable appetite. <clears throat> okay, so what do we have? What do we have in the end from King Solomon? And and I think this is a... a, a a point for the for the side that wait a minute even if there is a nuance in there that king solomon could have been a type of the antichrist we're not going to give up on king solomon because this is kind of the final word here the book of ecclesiastes is a dark study on a life lived apart from god solomon who wrote ecclesiastes looks back over his wasted years and finds no joy in them only futility vanity and chasing after the wind. But he had learned his lesson, albeit the hard way, and he wraps up the book with this advice. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And that's kind of echoing just a little bit what his father David said. In Psalm 103, as for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth, meaning a wildflower that only lasts for a few weeks. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, 
and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. So let's look at the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant was made after David proved faithful to God under all conditions. So after everything he had been through in his running for, for Saul and not taking things into his own hands, even when Saul's life was right in front of him, right. when he could have killed him. He, at the, you remember at the one point he cut off that hem of his garment that represented Saul's, uh, Saul, Saul's family. And then later he's going to regret even that. even that because Saul's family is going to get destroyed. Because Isboseth is going to try and take the throne from David. And, you know, you're going to have all this sword not departing from the house of David. It was an unconditional covenant, a token of God's love for David. Unconditional, no matter what David did, because he had already passed the test to that point, yeah, yeah, to totally that level. Right. It guaranteed David a promised land and an enduring offspring. It was patterned after the ancient Near Eastern covenants of Grant. And it defined the emperor as a vassal's father, not just as a lord, and the vassal as his son, not just a servant. And we're going to see this in when we read this in Second Samuel. It's going to be a father's son, but it's patterned after the emperor-vassal covenant agreements. The great type of a deliverer, however, is, and this is from Isaiah Decoded, by Abraham Gilyadi. The great type of a deliverer, however, in whom all ancient savior roles converged was King David. The Davidic covenant, the covenant God made individually with Israel's king, became a legal framework in which the savior role was acknowledged by God and people alike as filling the need for Israel's protection. Guys, this is so important because we can be part of a Davidic covenant like King David was. And that's where we're going with this. Before that time, although God made individual covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and others, such covenants didn't specify kingship. The king is, is important of God's people, as the Davidic covenant did. All who ascend to the son's servant level and above ultimately follow the model of King David and his righteous heirs, the savior kings who were types of Israel's future Messiah. So a covenant of grant, a gift that was given, an unconditional covenant. After a vassal had proven loyal to the emperor under all conditions, the emperor granted him a land a promised land, he and his heirs could rule forever. Look up the history of Pennsylvania. It was a grant given to William Penn as a descendant of his father's faithfulness. The emperor undertook to protect the vassal and his people in the event of a mortal threat, so long as the vassal remained loyal to him. By this means, the emperor would preserve the lineage and the people of the vassal as promised. You can see up there in the top corner of your screen a slide that is from Isaiah class 13 online on our website www.propheticappointments.com i did that right um and 
there is a two-hour class there that goes into detail in the Davidic covenant. What we're going to do is we're going to hit some highlights really fast. The individual covenants God made with his sons and servants are thus patterned after the covenant with King David. That's why David keeps getting mentioned over and over in scripture, because this covenant is real. This covenant can be invoked today. Keeping the terms of the Davidic covenant, in fact, forms the essence of living God's higher law. It takes to the limit loving God with one's whole heart, might, mind, and strength as one's neighbor as and one's neighbor as oneself. And that was the covenant that God made with David because David passed it to that point. God appears to his servants and sons and ministers personally as they pass through a descent before ascent. As they grow more like God by ministering to others, he blesses them with eternal blessings of promised lands, thrones, dominions, and so forth, as he did in his elect in the past. Think of your temple blessings. Their fulfilling the role of deliverers to God's people wins them everlasting glory. So this is the test that, that the exaltation would be a son-servant level. Now here you can see it in, in Psalms. Jehovah said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. Jehovah said to, to me, David, you are my son. This day I have begotten you. When you see that father, son, Lord, servant imagery, it is the Davidic covenant. David's grant was an unfailing line of ruling heirs to sit on David's throne and land that they could dwell in. And Joseph Smith told us that those covenants are still to be fulfilled. Now here it is in 2 Samuel when God promises to David, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. So that's Solomon, but it's also the latter day David that's not going to fall like David fell. The one that will rise up. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, that was Solomon, but it's also the end time David. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men, but my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thy house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So this is a covenant that God is it's unconditional. And God doesn't make these unconditional covenants unless people have passed tests of loyalty. Like David had passed to that point. Also, I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. 
If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, I will visit their transgression with a rod. Again, we see this in the Davidic covenant that the emperor works directly with that king to have him keep covenant and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. God will keep the covenant, no matter whether we do or not. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing which has gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. Selah. This is Isaiah chapter 22. And in Isaiah 22, we have an end time scenario. There's a person that's claiming to sit on the throne in authority named Shebna. And Shebna has been um, taking care of himself, basically. It says sculpting himself a sepulcher out of the rocks. And 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 the Lord is basically saying, how, how dare you lead my people and be a false shepherd, using Amos's terms, okay? And then the Lord tells him in verse 20, in that day I will commission my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and bind your girdle on him. And I will appoint him your jurisdiction, and he will be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So we see here that there is this why servant? Remember in um, the end of, I believe it's Matthew 24, where he says in the end time, there'll be a wise servant and a foolish servant. Right. And the, the, the foolish servant actually goes after and starts beating um, the people. I will invest him with the keys of the house of David. I, what he opens, none shall shut. And when he shuts, none shall open. So again, we're alluding to this Davidic covenant and in Isaiah 22 this is directly an end time situation Paul says it in 1st Corinthians you go ahead and read that one for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ ye have not many fathers for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel what do you think that means well so it's you've got instructors and teachers but no um, shepherds, no... No fathers to invoke a covenant yeah, no, on the people. No caring father, so to speak. Or... It's covenant language. Sure. It's a father-son father, covenant. It's not enough just to teach the gospel. There has to be covenant. Okay? So there's a protection clause in the Davidic covenant that is not unconditional. It is conditional upon their righteousness, whether or not they'll be protected, right? Well, it's kind of yin and yang, meaning that, that you have the protection clause goes in the sense that you're protected, but the discipline clause is also love. Right. That's true. <laughs> what I mean is, That's beautiful. It's still love. Right, yeah. As in emperor vassal covenants, David could win or lose God's protection depending on his loyalty to God. In an instance in which David sinned, now get this! This is in Chronicles, and David sins. You know how he sins? He does a census of the people. And censuses are not forbidden. Moses took a census in Numbers. But in this census, 
This sentence is going to bring down a plague on Israel because David took it to count his horses, actually his warriors, his people. But the idea is to build the horses and the chariots so I know how strong my armies are so that my trust is in my weaponry and not in my God. Kind of the opposite of what God was telling Gideon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Gideon, nope, don't want them unless they're faithful. Don't want them unless their whole heart is like. Exactly, so that I can do a Sinai covenant, so that I can protect them as a whole. Right. Because of their righteousness to a man. Okay. So in this instance, David sinned and a plague killed thousands. And here we have Solomon doing this all over the place. As you can see, on the king of Israel hung Israel's welfare for better or worse, a lot depended on the righteousness of your king. David and his heirs functioned as Israel's proxies, mediating with God in obtaining Israel's protection. Although the covenant God made with King David was unconditional, its protection clause was conditional. Okay, so in Genesis, we talked about the Abrahamic covenant. We talked about a celestial covenant where we're basically the same kind of covenant that we're assuming that David was being given with that whole Bathsheba situation, something that would have exalted him to a higher level if he had passed it. Correct. But in Abraham's case, he did pass it. He is our exemplar of keeping that kind of covenant. He is, and it's the covenant is called after him, the Abrahamic covenant. And we've talked about it in scripture that this is this is represented by elevated items like hardwood trees, like oaks, and offerings like rams, offerings that were high offerings in bulls and rams in the temple. And you can also find nuances of these covenants in precious stones throughout scripture. Then in Exodus, we saw the Sinai covenant. We've talked about that one a lot, how the people had to be righteous to a man and that this covenant was represented by semi-precious metals and by softwood trees and by clean animals, but not temple animals but still clean animals, okay? And then, and in some cases, even unclean animals that had become harmless and were not predators anymore. And the, and the, the, what the cry word, the motto for the celestial covenant was go ye and do the works of Abraham. And the cry words for the Sinai covenant was, I will be your God Can and you, you will be my like people. It. When you see that in scriptures, this is the covenant we're talking about. Okay, but now let's look at the Davidic covenant and see what the Davidic covenant's purpose is. Number one, its symbols are going to be, so we, we had our hardwood trees and we had our softwood trees. Now we've, we've got briars and thorns, but Why they're blossoming, okay? And, and then the stones are just common, right? Common stones. And then the heavenly bodies, celestial would have been the sun, terrestrial would have been the mm -hmm. moon, and here in our telestial, this is the stars. And this is where a king, a righteous king like David, can be faithful to God. And then if the people are loyal to him because of the king's faithfulness, God will protect the people. All right? Correct. That's, that's how it works. And the watchwords for this covenant is 
God is with us. And you know what that means in Hebrew? The Hebrew word for God is with us? Emmanuel. Is Emmanuel. Now, think about that one. God is with us. Why did they call Jesus Emmanuel? Okay? And That's beautiful. Think about, think about the fact that Jesus was coming to a celestial world. God is with us. There's a king that can save us. Yeah. Okay? So this is Davidic covenant. So we have in 2 Samuel the Davidic covenant introduced. And you, what you see written over there in the Hebrew is Emmanuel. This is God is with us. You can see this, the stones there. You can see the, the, the wild animals at the top. These are all symbols of a telestial covenant where in which a king can save the people. There's Emmanuel. And then there's another key word that you got to have before we dump, jump right into how it applies to us with a Davidic covenant. And that is the words sake for the sake of David or, the David, sake. or for the sake of Abraham. When um, the angels came to Lot in right. Sodom and Gomorrah, they came, they said, we came to you for the sake of Abraham. Abraham. So there's, just like it says in DNC 76, people on higher levels minister to the people on the lower levels. And so your Davidic covenant, guys, is the covenant that you need to save people that you love that are on a celestial level. And if we don't even understand it, if we don't even understand how to invoke a Davidic covenant, how can we bring protection on our families? Second Kings 26, when this is in when the story of Hezekiah, which we'll get to later, but I wanted you to see here that it says in verse 6, and I will add unto thy days 15 years. This is when King Hezekiah passes his seraphic or Abrahamic test. And I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake. And for my servant David's sake. And for my servant David's sake. So when this story in Isaiah plays out, okay, and we have King Hezekiah and Jerusalem, you remember the story. It's like such a cool story in the book of Isaiah. Remember that the they're threatening to destroy and wipe out Jerusalem, and Assyria has the the city under siege, and um, Hezekiah goes and and just in sackcloth and ashes in the temple and says, "God, save your people," but. God couldn't protect the city until the people were loyal to the king. The king had to be faithful to God, but in order for a Davidic covenant to work, the people have to be loyal to the king as well. And so you've got that story of the people up on the wall, and you've got the Assyrians out there taunting them, telling them if they don't come and, and defect right now, that, well, if they defect right now, they might spare their life. But if they don't, they're for sure going to die in the morning and be tortured to death. Right. And so what do the people do then? Instead of defecting, they go to Hezekiah and say, pray harder. <laughs> King, <laughs> there, there doesn't look good. And so you remember, because the king was loyal to God, the people were loyal to him. In the morning, 186,000 troops were dead outside the city wall. It becomes the type of a battle that God will fight because the people 
have kept covenant. And that becomes a type of the end time battle as well. But you can see again by tying, Isaiah actually breaks that verse in 2 Kings into two parts in chapters 37 and 38 and shows that the protection of the city is connected to Hezekiah in this case passing the test. Hezekiah being a Davidic king, a descendant of David. Under the terms of a Davidic covenant, God protects the people of the vassal for the sake of the vassal. As in ancient Near Eastern covenants, the emperor protects the people of the vassal so long as the vassal proves loyal to the emperor. And when assuming the surrogate role, the vassal actually will answer to God for the people's loyalties. And you saw that with Moses in Deuteronomy 32, 32, do you remember what he did? He pleads for the people. He pleads for the people. He says, take my name out of the yeah. book of life, but save the people. He's answering for the people. Okay, this is a Davidic covenant. Okay, so watch. Now that you know that God is with us, means Emmanuel, and it is the watch cry of a Davidic covenant, you can start finding it in scripture. Okay, so like when King Solomon is dedicating the temple in 1 Kings 8. And he says, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel, according to all that he promised, and there hath not failed one word. The Lord God be with us as he was with our fathers. Okay? And so here you're seeing that father, son, and the God be with us thing going on here at the dedication of the temple. But how about in little stories like this? This is Jonathan. Do you know who Jonathan is? Sure. Tell us who Jonathan is. Well, he's David's right-hand friend, Saul's. Bestie, bestie ever yeah. friend, Saul's son. Who stays and faithful to David. This story is so cool that I actually named my son after this Jonathan. <laughs> okay. So the backstory of this one is in 1 Samuel 14. And Jonathan said to the, his armor bearer, he says... There's Philistines up there. Let's get them. <laughs> and his armor bearer, instead of saying, you're crazy, because Jonathan tells him the Lord will work for us. And uh, his armor bearer says, do what's in your heart, and I'll do it with you. And Jonathan says, behold, we'll pass over here, and we'll discover ourselves unto them. So we'll let them see us. And then we, if they say to us, tarry until we come unto you, then we'll get out of there let's <laughs> stand in our place we're not gonna we're not gonna mess with them but if they say come up unto us then we will go up for the lord hath delivered them into our hand and this shall be a sign unto us so we have two guys we have the prince <laughs> who shouldn't be out in the front lines anyway and his armor bearer and he decides to go attack a whole garrison garrison of Philistines empty-handed, empty-handed, single-handed, double-handed, because, because he says the Lord will be with us. Now, the, the this shows you right here that Jonathan, Jonathan understood how the vassal relationship worked with God, and that if they were faithful and, and then he has his servant faithful to him, they can be protected, and they do. They go out there, the two of them, and they take out the entire Philistine garrison. And Saul is really upset with Jonathan for doing that. But the point is that 
how could Jonathan be David's friend? Who's going to be the next king when Saul dies? David. Yes, but who would be the next one in order? Jonathan. Jonathan. And so here we have someone who has every reason to hate David as much as Saul does. But instead, he loves David. He loves him fiercely and risks his life for David. And the bond that, that's between David and Jonathan is just heroic. John, Jonathan at one point gives him his robe and, and his ring. And he says, David, I know you'll be king. And, and yet Jonathan is no wimp. You know, he, he's as brave as David. And he's as faithful as David. And, and yet he has no pride. When they go in to clean up the rebellion of Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who does uh, try to take the kingdom from David, and they're wiping out, um, not David, but the generals are wiping out Saul's family. One of, um, one of the servants takes Jonathan's son, young son, Mephibosheth, and she's carrying him on her shoulders, according to Josephus, and trying to escape and save Mephibosheth's life. And she falls. And in the wounds from the fall, Mephibosheth becomes lame in both legs. It doesn't get set right. He's in hiding. They're terrified that if David's, if David's general would have found him, he might have killed him. But if David found him, um, he, he just believes that that he'll be killed because he's Saul's son or, or grandson. So he is in hiding for many, many years. And when David comes to Jerusalem, he is looking for, when he finally is king, he is looking for a survivor of Jonathan <coughs> because he had made a covenant with Jonathan that he would always be a brother to him. And so finally they find Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth comes to the palace and he probably feels like this is it. He's going to get killed. And David is so happy to find him. And he says, because you are Jonathan's son, I'm going to give you all that was Saul's. I'm going to give you the kingdom. That part of it. And I, I just think that the, the story of the, of the love and the friendship between Jonathan and David in the Bible is absolutely one of the most incredible, incredible stories in there. And I think so often how many of us don't realize that the Lord is reaching to us. He wants to give us half of his kingdom. He wants us to be joint heirs with him. And we think so much less of our king than who he really is. And that's the nature of a Davidic covenant. A king who is willing to give what he has to his people. Now, because we know how Davidic covenant works, I want you to just see just a couple of examples in the Book of Mormon because this is so cool. And one of them, this is Ammon. And you remember in the Book of Mormon, Ammon couldn't be slain. 
They kept trying to kill him, and they couldn't. They 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 told the king. They said, you know, hey, he's just wiped out everybody's arms. They're, we're we're all sacked, and he can't be slain. We can't hit him. And one of them, whose brother had been slain with the sword of Ammon, being exceedingly angry with Ammon, drew his sword and went forth that he might let it fall upon Ammon to slay him. And he lifted up his sword to smite him because Ammon was conked out. And behold, he fell dead. Now we see that Ammon could not be slain. And it tells us why. For the Lord had said unto Messiah, his father, I will spare him. And it shall be unto him according to thy faith. Therefore, Mosiah trusted him unto the Lord. Mosiah was a king that was faithful to the Lord. And Ammon kept covenant with him, and God will protect him. That's a Davidic covenant. All right, how about this one? Mormon and Moroni. Thou knowest the wickedness of this people. Thou knowest that they are without principle and past feeling and that their wickedness does exceed that of the Lamanites. Behold, my son, I cannot recommend unto God lest he should smite me. But behold, my son, I recommend thee unto God. And I trust in Christ that thou wilt be saved. And I pray unto God that he will spare thy life to witness the return of his people unto him or their utter destruction. So we have another righteous king and father invoking protection on his faithful son. So how does all this apply to us? Joseph Smith said, even this nation will be on the very verge of crumbling to pieces and tumbling to the ground. And when the Constitution is upon the brink of ruin, Hope some of you are going, what? This people will be the staff upon which the nation shall lean, and they shall bear the constitution away from the very verge of destruction. Then shall the Lord say, Go tell all my servants who are the strength of mine house, my young men and my middle-aged, and etc., come to the land of my vineyard and fight the battle of the Lord. Then the kings and the queens shall come. And the rulers of the earth shall come, and then all the saints will come from foreign lands to fight for the land of my vineyard. For in this thing shall be their safety, and they will have no power to choose, but will come as a man fleeth from sudden destruction. Hmm. This is dovetailing in with DNC 101. It's also dovetailing in with DNC 45, that Zion will be the only place of safety for those who would not want to lift up the sword against their brother. So now Joseph Smith's going to tell us who the kings and queens are. Those holding the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood are kings and priests. Hmm, That's beautiful. And to the Most High God. So who can invoke a Davidic covenant? A king. Why do we want to be kings? It's to save them. There's only... Three people in scripture that are, well, in the Bible, that are kings and priests, both kings and priests. The first one was Melchizedek. The second one's obvious. I'm not sure. Jesus. Oh, okay. A king and a priest. Okay. But you know who the third one is? Look at this in Revelation. And thou hast made made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. 
I guess that's uh, us that qualify. Well, it says... Not a general us. Right. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, Jesus Christ, for thou was slain and hast redeemed us. So this is everyone that has been redeemed, redeemed by, by Christ. Christ. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Um, and has made unto us us unto our God, kings and priests. We can all be part of the saving of others in this end time through the principle of Davidic covenants. Isaiah said it in Isaiah 49. Thus says my Lord Jehovah, I will lift up my hand to the nations. I will raise my ensign to the people and they will bring your sons in their bosoms and they will carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings will be your foster mothers and queens your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you and their faces to the ground and they will lick the dust of your feet. Then you shall know that I am Jehovah and that they who hope in me are not disappointed. There is a job for kings and queens and priests and priestesses in the end time. In First Nephi 15, And now the thing which our father meaneth concerning the grafting of the natural branches through the fullness of the Gentiles is that in the latter days, when our seed is dwindled in unbelief, yea, for the space of many years and many generations, after the Messiah shall be manifested in body unto the children of men, then shall the fullness of the gospel of the Messiah come to the Gentiles. Why? From them to the remnant of our seed. And at that day, the remnant of our seed will know that they are of the house of Israel and they will covenants of the father will be remembered and they will come to a knowledge of their redeemer. Yea, chapter 10, second Nephi, the kings of the Gentiles shall be nursing fathers unto them. He's telling you what Isaiah was meaning. And the queens will be nursing mothers, wherefore the promises of the Lord are great unto the Gentiles. For he has spoken it, and who can dispute it? Nevertheless, after they shall be nursed by the Gentiles, and the Lord has lifted up his hand upon the Gentiles and set them up for a standard, their children have been carried in their arms, and their daughters have been carried on their shoulders. Behold, these things of which are spoken are temporal in the flesh. For thus, that's Second Nephi 10, in the flesh. For thus are the covenants of the Lord with our fathers, and it meaneth us in the days to come and also our brethren who are of the house of Israel. Do we need to know what a Davidic covenant is? Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, withhold not. Bring my sons and daughters from afar, from the ends of the earth. This is Avraham Gileadian, Becoming Kings and Queens, page 81. That is why the Book of Mormon prophets draw on Isaiah for their frame of reference when teaching God's plan of salvation and when predicting end-time events. Their repeated references three times seven or more to God's fulfilling the covenants that he made with the house of Israel are an outgrowth of Isaiah's covenant theology. Once Isaiah's words are understood for what they are, all other scriptures, ancient and modern, fall into place. Hence Jesus' commandment to search them diligently. Arise, shine, your light has dawned. The glory of Jehovah has risen upon you, although darkness covers the earth and a thick mist to the peoples. Upon you, Jehovah will shine. Over you, his glory shall be visible. Nations will come to your light, their kings to the brightness of your dawn. Look 
Lift up your eyes and look about you. They have all assembled to come to you. Your sons shall arrive from afar. Your daughters shall return to your side. Do not fear, for I am with you. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. In that day, my Lord will again raise his hand to reclaim the remnant of his people, those who shall be left out of Assyria and around the world. He will raise an ensign to the nations and assemble the exiled of Israel. He will gather the scattered of Judah from the four directions of the earth. And there will be a pathway out of Assyria for the remnant of his people who should be left. Saviors will come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And by hearkening to observe all the words which I, the Lord God, shall speak unto them, they shall never cease to prevail until the kingdoms of the world are subdued under my feet and the earth is given to the saints to possess it forever and ever. But inasmuch as they keep not my commandments and hearken not to observe my words, the kingdoms of the world will prevail against them. For they were set to be a light, to be saviors of men, to invoke Davidic covenants and be faithful and loyal to God no matter what so that they could save others. And inasmuch as they are not saviors of men, they are salt that has lost its savor. But barely I say unto you, I have decreed that your brethren which are scattered shall return to the lands of their inheritances and they shall build the waste places of Zion. For after much tribulation... As I have said unto you in a former commandment, cometh the blessing. Mormon, and also the knowledge of these things must come into the remnant of this, these people and also unto the Gentiles. And now behold, I speak unto their seed and to the Gentiles who shall have care for the house of Israel that realize and know from whence their blessings come. For I know that such will sorrow for the calamity of the house of Israel. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, thus saith God, I will afflict thy seed by the hand of the Gentiles, but nevertheless I will soften the hearts of the Gentiles, and they shall be like a father to them, and they will be numbered amongst thy seed. And foreigners who adhere to Jehovah to serve him, who love the name of Jehovah, that he may be his servants, who will keep the Sabbath without profaning it and holding fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and gladden in my house of prayer. Their offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be known as a house of prayer to all nations. And this is the last one. Thus says Jehovah, as when there is juice and a cluster of grapes and someone says, don't destroy it, it's still good. So I will do for the sake of my servants, for the sake of those who are willing to keep Davidic covenants, the kings and the queens of the Gentiles in Isaiah 49, who are the only hope that Mormon is praying for, that the Gentiles will have charity and that they will fulfill their mission in the end time by not destroying everything. I will extract offspring out of Jacob and out of Judah heirs of my mountains. My chosen ones shall inherit them and my servants shall dwell there. 
and you can tell I get passionate about Isaiah <laughs> and the Just Davidic Covenant. <laughs> I mean, guys, this is our mission. And so many of us don't even understand what a Davidic Covenant is. Hey, y'all. Uh, hey, uh, Thank you. Definitely passionate. Um, May we be found serving the Lord and keeping our covenants. May the Lord protect and defend you. And thank you again. Till next time. Till next time.